0: From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Words move people. Let's dance. Google, are you feeling lucky? Okay, Google, be my interpreter. Okay, Google, but Be good to one another.
1: With Morse code, I roar.
0: Hey there, and welcome back to the Webby Podcast. Restaurant recommendations, interactive stories, and even access to the internet for the visually impaired. These are just a few of the possibilities of voice technology. And for my next guest, Kathy Pearl, each use of voice should seamlessly fit into our daily lives. Kathy is head of conversation design outreach at Google, and she's on a mission to foster better conversations between machines and humans. She's also a Webby judge in our new voice categories. Kathy and I talked all about voice, From how great design should encompass the variety with which humans speak, why she's excited about silent speech, what excites her most about the field, and her blueprint to help anyone who's designing voice user interfaces. We start off talking about the growing field of conversation design.
1: My job um, is all about bringing awareness of conversation design. So. Basically, it's how we are teaching computers to communicate more like humans and not the other way around. So anytime you're interacting with a voice user interface, whether it's on a smart speaker or your phone, there's a lot of design best practices and principles that should really be applied to make that a good experience and not a frustrating experience. We've all had a lot of frustrating experiences. And my job is really to educate and bring awareness that we can actually do a much better job and have really pleasant, interesting, efficient uh, interactions.
0: Well, you know, you just said something right away that I've always thought about it as kind of the opposite, which is I always thought when I'm interacting with these things that I should be trying to, you know, how can the computer understand me? Like, you know, I think if you were to record me or anyone really interacting with Google Home or... Some other voice assistant, there's sort of always like a, a shorthand where people like say things in different ways and in a shorter, shorter words or try and guess the words that are going to trigger the response. Right.
1: Yeah, that's really common. And it's something we're trying to get away from because our goal really is not to pretend to be human, but it's really all about leveraging the way that people already talk. And the more that we can do that, the more naturally somebody can speak and not have to get into this sort of shorthand computer language, which is a lot harder for people, because we've all been talking since we were little. And if we can just talk the way we normally talk, I mean, that's the best. One example I'll give is, a while ago, our internet was out and we like rebooted the router and all this stuff, and without even thinking, I just said, hey Google, are you working? And it came back and said, hi, how can I help you? And the thing I love about that is I didn't have to stop and think, like, how do I say this command about checking the Internet? It just, it just came out of my mouth. It replied. I knew the Wi-Fi was working. And that's the goal we're, we're heading towards. Like, let's not force people into a box of how to speak.
0: Why do you think people do speak in a different way to Google Home than, say, to their friend or, you know, in a different type of conversation, what's the context there that's that's driving them? And like, what do you need to do in order to, to change that?
1: I think it's a couple things. One, it's the fact that we learned a language on how to type keywords into a search box. And we had to learn that. And we all got pretty good at it. And now we've expanded to this idea of speaking. And so a lot of people think, well, I must have to use the same way. The other part is there are just a lot of bad voice user interfaces out there. And so you've had to learn to try lots of different ways because A lot of times a design is poor. Like, let's pick an example where it asks you something like, do you like cheese? And the person building that might think, well, people are either going to say yes or they're going to say no. It's easy. But in fact, people say, sure, I do. Or heck no. Or, oh, I like hard cheeses, but not soft cheeses. There's so much variety in how we speak. And if you design well, you can capture all those things. But a lot of people skip that and they think, oh, I asked a yes, no question. People will say yes or they will say no. And they miss out on that opportunity to really let people speak the way that they speak.
0: How do you learn about all the ways that people answer those questions? Is it just from like just doing user research or do you, at some point you just you know, you've done it enough that you sort of know what the typical 50 responses are going to be? Or
1: It's certainly both. If it's something like a, a yes, or no question, you know, we know a lot about that already, and we can reuse those lessons. If it's a new domain, a new way, a new subject, then user research absolutely is really important, and just iterating. So first you do testing with a small group of people, and you see the responses they give, and you make yours better. And then you put it out in the world for a few more people, get more uh, responses, and then you continue to iterate on that, because people will always surprise you, even when you're an expert in this space. And you can continually improve and be learning and, and, and making it better.
0: Can you walk us through from a slightly more technical perspective when I'm just having a conversation or I'm asking requests of a voice assistant, kind of like what's going on in the background? So so just to go back to your cheese example, you know, if you say, do you like cheese? And I say, oh, I like Swiss. In order for the software to respond to that, did you have to imagine all the 80 responses that could possibly you know, somebody could give and then have those all as options that software is ready to respond to or or are using some other sort of AI or algorithms or something to, to link potential responses to like libraries and so forth?
1: There's kind of two parts. The first part is what we call the automated speech recognition. So that's the part where it translates the sounds that are coming out of your mouth into actual words. But there isn't really a lot of meaning yet. So for example, I don't speak German. If someone is speaking to me in German, I might be able to sort of write down the sounds they're making and show those to somebody who does speak German and they could understand them, but I don't understand them. So that's part one. And part two is the natural language understanding, what you were just talking about, where if you say Swiss, how do we know that's a cheese? And it's a combination at this point in the technology of both some manual labor that people are doing and also some machine learning. And it's a combination of taking those things and grouping people's responses that are similar together. We can do some of that in an automated way, but it's not 100% automated yet for sure.
0: For every action that's created by anybody, there has to be some amount of manual labor to just capture the potential meanings of the responses.
1: Right. And we have tools to help people with that. Um, But you don't just snap your fingers and voila, have an action. You have to spend time, especially on the design side, thinking through what are the different pathways that somebody might take through your action? What are the types of things they're going to want to know about? How might they ask them? And then you can use a tool to help you create that experience.
0: So there's, I think probably most people think about this, and we've already been talking a lot about about this around voice, but it, it is actually not a field that's limited to voice, correct?
1: So conversation design definitely covers a lot of different modalities. Certainly voice is one of the most common, but it's really any time you're having a conversation with the machine, whether that's typing on your phone, even swiping and tapping can really be part of a back and forth conversation. So all of those things are encompassed under the conversation design umbrella.
0: How does somebody who's in conversation design, what are the, the really important criteria when you start thinking about, okay, what's the best modality for this type of conversation?
1: really comes back to where is it gonna be useful for the person actually involved? So a lot of times I see brands and companies say, hey, we're gonna get on this voice thing because it's super cool. And then they build something and nobody uses it and they're not sure why. So first of all, is this something that a person might have a conversation with another human being to accomplish in real life? That's probably a good candidate. And then you think, okay, well, where are they gonna be? Are they gonna be in the car? Are they gonna be in the kitchen cooking? Are they gonna be on their phone? What's their context? And then you can decide, okay, well, if they're cooking, their hands are probably busy, so voice is going to be a good situation here. And you build towards meeting the user where they're at. But you really have to spend time thinking, is this going to add value to their life? Or are they going to just do it the way they normally do it?
0: And do you think that there are there, like, what are the types of places right now that voice would be really great, but where there's just like not voice hardware, right? So there's, there's all these voice assistants in homes and I would imagine lots of kitchens and living rooms and so forth. There's some of it in cars, but what are the types of places where voice isn't where it will be really great?
1: I think there'll be more places out in the public arena, whether that's in, you know, a school or a hospital or a business where you might be able to ask questions if you're looking for something or you need something and you don't have to find like, oh, what is the app or the website or the other mode for getting information about this place or this thing that I need? And instead, you can just cut through all that and just ask for what you need.
0: Is there any any like specific examples of that that you think are sort of on the horizon that people haven't thought, thought of yet or haven't seen, quite seen yet?
1: One of the things I'm kind of excited about is this idea of silent speech One of the things about voice user interfaces is that a lot of us might be comfortable talking to our smart speaker at home, but when we're out and about or in the office or whatever, we feel kind of silly talking out loud to our computer. And there's places like MIT is working on a prototype called Alter Ego, where it captures the pre-speech signals that you're making. It has a little uh, sensor along your jawline. And as you start to form words, you're sending signals, so it can understand certain words that you're, quote, saying without making any sound. And I think something like that that allows us to still use this frictionless method of communication without everyone necessarily hearing us is going to be a really big step to making these more ubiquitous.
0: Interesting. So can you like help listeners just like even visualize a little bit more what that moment is or that second is? Like so if I were to say the word yes, I'm I'm sort of doing something with my mouth that like that is pre signaling a yes before I start yes? Or Is it I can say yes without actually verbalizing it?
1: Exactly. It's as you start to form the word, but you stop before you actually speak it out loud. You're already making very, very subtle movements along your jaw um, and inside your, your mouth that can be picked up with sensors. Yeah, you can actually check out the video of the prototype called Alter Ego from MIT on YouTube.
0: One thing you brought up there I was really interested in is that talking a little bit more about that place where people are comfortable using voice and not comfortable using voice. And I think that one thing, at least that I've, when I've spoken to people in this field about this, what they've said a lot about, especially the home assistants, is it's really hard to get people to start using them. But when they start using them by themselves at home and nobody's there, it's like the usage can ramp up really, really quickly. Um, but not so much around other people and in public. Is that something that you found and
1: yeah, definitely. Um, even myself, who have been, you know, using voice user interfaces for twenty years, and I'll be out if I'm out and about, like I'm on the train or something, and I and I want to dictate a text message, I often won't do it because I feel a little funny. Or it's also not just that; it's like in the office, I don't want to be annoying. If everyone's talking to their computers all the time, it's it's just going to be really distracting. Right. So sometimes I really wish I had a way to do this silent speech, so I could still talk, um, but at but not annoy other people.
0: Right. So so that's like a that's a good for people who are out there thinking about when to use voice back to that sort of earlier question, whether users will be comfortable saying things out loud, which sounds really obvious actually as I say it, but that's a that's a that's a good signal as to whether voice is is the right the right modality for this or not.
1: Yeah, for sure. And it will it will probably evolve. I mean, you think about when cell phones first came out and you saw people talking on their cell phones and you just thought they were crazy. Um, but people do it all the time now. So this this whole attitude may shift.
0: Switching gears a second here, our listeners might not know, you've actually been in conversation design for much longer than people might expect, given that some of these voice assistants and technologies that we're just talking about now are fairly recent, but you've actually been involved in this field for, for a couple decades, if not more, right?
1: Yeah, to almost exactly 20 years, in fact. I got my start uh, back in the late 90s at a company called Nuance Communication. And back then, the only really publicly available mainstream use of this technology with voice was automated phone systems. So, I worked on those things where you call and talk to your bank or your airline and, and, uh, you know, do things over the phone. And although the technology has certainly improved since then and the use cases have really changed, having things like a smart speaker in your home, the thing we often emphasize when we've been, if we've been working on this a long time, is that a lot of the best practices and principles about conversation design, we learned you know, back back in the early 2000s. And they're still applicable today, even in this new model. Um, and that really surprises people sometimes because they think, oh, phone systems those are so different. Um, but they have a lot in common and there's a lot we can learn from them.
0: It just strikes me that you were working on something for the most part, I think probably most people got into those phone trees and there's some amount of like not wanting to interface with with the software, right? Like people are trying to, push zero or get out of it or say agent or like they're trying to get to another person. And to some extent, some of the work there is trying to quickly get them into the right place. Whereas now it's like you have millions of people, you know, suddenly like voluntarily placing these things all over in their, you know, in their lives all over the place and and trying to use them as best they can all the time.
1: For sure. I remember back when I worked on phone systems, you know, I'd go to parties and somebody would say, what do you do? I say, oh, I work on those phone things. And they say, I hate those. Um, and <laughs> certainly, you know, after spending eight years doing that, I, I quit and I, I didn't want to do speech anymore because I just the use case just wasn't it wasn't compelling. It was like you said, people really just wanted to speak to a person and we were not letting them. And I turned away from from voice for a while, but I really got sucked back in when smart speakers came out because here was this brand new use case where people wanted to speak to them to do things in a way that was fun or easier. And I was just... I've been so excited about the new potential for voice uh, and these new modalities.
0: You know, I think when I'm, for instance, used to processing information in some way, I'm like reading an article or I'm on a website or I'm doing something on the internet, on my phone, I'm texting... There's a lot of, like, sort of visual cues as to how I should perceive or translate that information, you know, whether I should trust it or not. I can sort of decide what I want to look at and not look at. But with voice, you also lose the ability to see, like, where am I getting this information from and should I trust this information and who wrote this information and all these other sort of cues I think people use to navigate, you know, what is a world filled with information. How do you you approach that from a conversation design standpoint, like if I say Google home, you know, what, what's the temperature outside today? How, how do you approach making sure people can trust the answer?
1: You bring up some really good points. The the first I want to go back to is just the fact that when you are ingesting information from a visual source versus an audio-only source, it's so different. Because if you're looking, let's say, you want to know what time a restaurant is open on Wednesday, and you look at, usually you're looking at a table of information on your phone. There's a table like, oh, it's open Mondays, this Tuesdays, that. And you can take your time, as much time as you want, to answer the questions you want. Whereas if it's a voice-only situation and you ask, you know, what time is this sushi restaurant open? You do not want to hear this blast of like, well, Monday, blah, 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 Tuesday, blah, blah. I mean, that's just a terrible experience. So we have to really craft more like a human would do it and just get to the heart of what they want. As far as like trusting sources, um, the Google Assistant, for example, if you ask a question about uh, a fact or something, often it will, it will tell you the source. It will say, I found on Wikipedia, and it will start describing the the, the fact or whatever you've looked up. So that's part of it is or if you're asking for the news, you know, it tells you here's your news report from such and such. And so it tries to give you sources for those types of of interactions. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: Is that something that you, when you're designing, that, you're, you know, that the conversation design team at Google, when you're working through these problems, is that, is, that a big, is that a big factor? It's like making sure people understand where this information is coming from?
1: I would say more broadly, trust is very important to us. Um, So that has a lot of different parts to it. Part of it is, you know, source, but also part of it is just um, really building a relationship with the user. And by that, I mean even simple things like if you ask, you know, in my ideal world, if you ask for something that is not available, when you ask, say, a concierge at a hotel, you say, I want to rent a car. Can you help me with that? The concierge, if they can't, they won't say, I don't understand, right? They'll say, oh, sorry, I can't rent cars, but I can get you dinner reservations. So I think it's a really important thing for voice assistants to do the same thing. If people are often asking for something that can't be provided, don't just say, I don't understand. Say, oh, I can't do that yet. Because what happens is people don't know the difference between oh, it can't do that, or I said it wrong. So sometimes you get in this loop where somebody will start repeating themselves and trying all these different phrases because they think, well, maybe I didn't say it right. I'll say it like this. And it's really frustrating. So it's, it's much better if we can just be like, mm, actually, that's not something we can do. Could, I, could we do this other thing? And you build trust in little things like that, little interactions across the board that over time will build trust uh, with the user.
0: Let's talk about, you have a book. Uh, it's called Designing Voice User Interfaces. Um, and I think it's sort of looked at as like a blueprint of how developers should begin to do this. And we talked a little bit about some of the important guidelines, but like, what do you think are the main principles or guidelines people should be following when designing um, voice user interfaces?
1: There's a few really basic ones that anybody who works on this can really get behind again, back to, should I even be building this in the first place? Is it really adding value by allowing someone to do this via voice? There's, again, the whole idea of design for how people actually talk, not how you wish them to talk, uh, making sure you're iterating and testing. Um, then there's other things that the book goes through about, for example, we have this thing called error handling or, or repair. And you know when humans have conversations um, We often misunderstand each other, but we don't call that an error. Like, I wouldn't say, oh, hey, I was talking to David and we had three errors yesterday. Because we're so good at getting back on track. Like, if you say, oh, I went out to eat at blah, 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 and I say, where did you go to eat? That's repair. And we just get back on track. Conversation keeps going. And I think when someone comes from maybe a background of designing for a website or mobile app, you know, we know when somebody taps a button or selects a menu option or swipes, With voice and natural language understanding, sometimes it's a bit more of an educated guess. And so things do go wrong. Sometimes we misunderstand the person. We didn't get it right. There's an unexpected response. And you need to really spend some time on those use cases and make sure that you help the user get back on track. Because generally speaking, people are cooperative. They want to get something out of your experience. They're not trying to mess with you. And so, you know, help them out. Think about how would a human get things back on track and, and really try to emulate that.
0: So what are are some examples of doing that successfully?
1: So what I see a lot of times is that when someone says something unexpected, they often are given a very generic response. Like, let's say you are building an action for a chocolate shop. And it's like, welcome to Kathy's Chocolate Shop. You know, would you like recipes or play a game? And somebody says, well, where are your stores? And a lot of times I'll see people have a response that says, I don't understand. And you say, well, where can I buy your chocolates? I don't understand, you know, over and over again. And you're not you're just leaving them to, to cycle endlessly and be frustrated.
0: We're just like back to what we talked about earlier. We're just trying to guess at like what's the what's the computer's way of understanding this, right, essentially?
1: Exactly. And some people will just keep repeating themselves. So instead, we should jump in and say, you know, I can give you recipes or I can play a trivia game. Which would you like? Or there might be a question where you're giving a recipe and you say, would you like a quick recipe or a long recipe? And they're like, well, I don't have that much time. And we don't understand that. So we say, quick recipe or long recipe? And they say, well, how much time is it? And at that point, you need to give more information. They've struggled twice now. So you might jump in and say, well, short. a short recipe is under an hour and a long recipe is more than an hour. And now they have enough information maybe to make a decision. Another one I'll I'll talk about is this idea of what we call the adjacent question, where let's say you're booking a restaurant reservation and you say, how many people in your party? And you might think, well, someone's going to say a number, right? What else would they say? But in fact, they might say, well, do you have outdoor seating? So they're going to ask a question that's related. I mean, they're not going to suddenly say, like, what is the temperature in Antarctica right now, right? But they're going to maybe say something that is related to making a reservation that you might not have expected. So you need to think through those types of adjacent things that might be happening and make sure you can address those. Some people go too far the other way. They think, oh, someone's going to ask Anything at any time, and people just—we don't do that. In fact, we often will say, like, "Oh, on another topic." Like, we ourselves will announce, like, "We're shifting gears here," so it's more that we're staying within a topic, but we might not answer the exact question. We might ask a related question. We're not just going to go off on on any topic.
0: So, how much do you struggle with wanting to not pretend like a voice is a human? Right, we're not trying to fool anybody. But also still converse in a way that is natural for human beings.
1: Right, exactly. Um, again, it's all about leveraging how people already know how to communicate. And the the thing that's really challenging, because a lot of times people might say, "Well, why do I need to hire a conversation designer? Learn about conversation design. I know how to have conversation perfectly well." But I think what we often forget is how much of communication between humans is not just the individual words, it's the eye gaze, it's the body language, it's pauses, it's the intonation. And right now, we don't get any of that with the computer. All we get are the words. And so we really have to cram a lot of careful meaning into how we construct each turn in the conversation. And that's, that's actually pretty challenging. That, that takes some, you know, some really thoughtfulness and, and skill to do that well.
0: Do you think we're, are we close to a place where instead of just getting the words and translating them into, you know, whatever they translate into a text or whatever it is, so that there's meaning that, that, you, that we're close to a place where the ums and the pauses and the awkward silences and some of that stuff, that sort of like second level of human discussion that's not only in the words where these these uh, assistants and other voice recognition technologies are going to start being able to pick up and, and react to that?
1: I think there's certainly a lot of people out there, uh, not necessarily at Google, but just people in the world are working on a lot of these different things like, you know, eye gaze, tracking, and interpreting body language. Um, so I definitely think someday we will get a little bit closer to how humans communicate with all these additional signals that are coming. And um, someday computers will be able to pick up on some of those signals as well.
0: Uh, one thing I want to talk a bit about was just gender invoices the default voice for voice assistants and smart speakers, and I'm not specifically saying Google, but just in general out in the world, whether it's a home assistant or some of the other places we encounter these um, assistants and, and technologies, is generally female. Um, like, what do you think about that? Are there times where different genders are more appropriate? It's hard for me to imagine that there would be, but at the same time, that seems like a natural way of you know, sort of like trying to answer some of these questions.
1: So the Google Assistant doesn't have an assigned gender. Um, basically, when you set up your Google Home for the first time, it actually is a 50-50 chance whether you're going to get the male sounding or the female sounding voice. And we have, oh, okay. I think, four different female sounding and four different male sounding. Um, so that's something I really like about the Google Assistant is that it's, we're really more about like we should let the person, you know, decide for themselves um, and not always default to one or the other. I think it helps to do the randomization because I think the more examples we see of the different genders just normalizes it so that it's not just, oh, the default is always female or something like that. And that's how people have it in their heads. But to have lots of different ones out there, just like there's lots of different people out there, and make sure that we don't fall into, you know, tired old stereotypes about, you know, female voices uh, being more helpful or something like that. But really put more examples out there in the world and let people just be normalized
0: i think that there's a, a special john legend voice now for for the google home i believe do you think that's sort of something we're going to start to see like more famous people or more fun you know unique voices the sesame street characters or, or stuff like that
1: i think so i think the john legend one is really fun it it People love to personalize things and make them their own, and I think we'll see more of those types of things where there's more entertaining voices to choose from. And everybody has sort of their different spin on things, and I think it's a nice idea to be able to let people do more of that kind of thing.
0: Feels a little bit like ringtones a little bit.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, people like to personalize everything, right? Like, you know, you got your special cell phone cover and which car color you want, all this stuff.
0: And then what about the other way, being able to recognize the person who's speaking to the assistant's voice?
1: We can do that in small ways right now where, for example, if um, I say what's on my calendar, I can get a different response than if my husband says what's on my calendar because it can know our our voices. So for certain features Mm -hmm. like that, it's pretty handy yeah, and I can certainly imagine a world someday where um, these virtual assistants are getting to know us a little more, getting to know our preferences, and, and that could come in handy for certain things.
0: And let's talk about like kids and virtual assistants. How do you design or how do you think about um, designing conversations for children versus adults?
1: I really liked this article by uh, Internet of Things guru, Stacy Hingenbotham. She was talking about how smart speakers have really given her younger daughter sort of a voice in the household. And I see kind of the same thing in, in my house. My son is 11, and he doesn't have a, a smartphone. So his gateway into being able to do things like choose the music is all through smart speakers. I think about when I was his age, I had a boombox and a radio, and that's how I discovered music. And for him... The The power to be able to choose and explore music on his own with a smart speaker, um, I think, is great. Before we had the smart speaker, he wasn't that into music or singing, and it's helped that a lot. But he uses it for all kinds of things. He'll ask questions. Um, you know, he'll play games on it, ask it to tell him jokes. And it's been interesting to me to watch how he uses it and And see the types of things he kids are very into exploration. Like you know, I've been doing this for a long time, but he'll discover features I didn't know existed just because he's trying stuff that doesn't occur to me. And uh, it's been a pretty positive experience.
0: I have two young boys as well, and i've I've also seen them really explore using some of the features, which is really fun. and I, I agree, especially things like that have been moved over to phones, like you mentioned, like, like music where it used to be like there was a stereo or there was some sort of like analog interface that anybody could walk up to and do stuff to and now a lot of that is like on a phone and for a lot of parents they not everyone but a lot of parents sort of restrict some of the usage of the phone and that kind of thing um so it does limit them and the the smart speakers have given them more access so that's pretty interesting it's all it's also weird to realize then that when you i've also seen personally when you you know, I think everybody's sort of gotten mad at the smart speaker at some point, you know, just gotten frustrated or something. And then you realize that you're kind of like modeling that for your kids when you hear them like calling the smart speaker a name or not being so nice to it.
1: Yeah, I I think about this in terms of how just to, with anything, like if you go on a date and, and you know, your date is really nice to you, but they're mean to the waiter that like that's a sign about them. And so I think it's the same with the way people treat machines and devices you know I want to and not that I'm saying I always model this well but just I want to teach my son like it's not really a great idea to yell at these things also like yelling at them doesn't make them work any better (laughs) so you don't get rewarded for yelling at them like um, but yeah to me it's more about what does it say about the person who's interacting with the device when they're yelling at it and and how can we just teach our, our all of us you know that we should be respectful to lots of things, not just our best friend or whatever.
0: Do you find that there's people or there's organizations that are really great at designing conversations and designing you know, voice interactions or commands um, for, for younger people? Like, is that a skill that's different than doing it for adults?
1: I think it's a subset. Um, there are things uh, people have created, like special alarms with characters. Or one I really like is the read-along, where um, you can read along with the story and it will put sound effects in and things like that. Um, so I think it's a skill set. Probably somebody who's done design, whether they've designed toys or websites for kids or apps for kids, could apply to voice as well, where they know um, what's maybe what's interesting to a kid. And and also that a really young kid might necessarily necessarily interact in exactly the same way as as an older adult, they might have a different walkthrough of how they want to explore something. And so I think having some experience with any kid's product would, would be really helpful in this case.
0: It still seems, and maybe you'll disagree, but it still seems to us that there's, there's a bunch of sort of like initial innovation, but there hasn't been as much like second level or third level for like lack of a better term um experimentation out there that a lot of especially like sort of in in the brand space and in places where people where organizations are just sort of coming onto this, that they're doing a lot of things that sort of like have one-turn tasks, if you will, but haven't really gone too, too far into it. Um, what do you think has to happen in order to, to to encourage more innovation?
1: I think there's a couple things. One of the really hardest problems we have right now is this idea of discoverability, meaning you know, the Google Assistant can do hundreds, if not thousands of things. How do I know what they are? How do I know what it can't do as well? And you see that in sort of voice assistance overall, but you also see it within, say, an action on Google. So you might see a brand um, and you get to the brand and it says, welcome to brand. How can I help you? And it's like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, right. um, We have to get better at setting very clear expectations. Like it could probably do three things. Well, we should we should make that clear. But I am seeing some interesting experimentation in this space. There's one called Mix Labs where you can say things like, you know, add a beat or put in a trumpet and it mixes together all these sounds and instruments together and you can make songs and it's really fun. I saw one where a man whose dad had a stroke, he created a president quiz for his dad to help exercise his cognitive abilities. There's one I saw called Chord Assist that is a guitar tuner for people who are visually impaired. Um, I'm seeing some really interesting things and there's some interesting games out there. So I I agree that we we haven't we really haven't seen it all yet. Basically, this is so new and people are still really trying to understand what should I even build with this um, that we haven't quite figure that out yet, but I'm just really excited to see all these things that are coming around and, and the thing that no one has even thought of yet. And anyone out there can build an action for Google. Um, and I just, I can't wait to see what people come up with.
0: Awesome. Well, Kathy Pearl, thank you so much for joining us on the Webby podcast. It was great to talk to you.
1: Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Thank you to Kathy for joining us on the Webby podcast and for the work you do as a judge for the Webby Awards. There are so many possibilities for voice technology that we here at the Webby Awards are constantly exploring. It's been awesome to have Kathy as one of our guides. Keep up with Kathy on Twitter at cpearl42 to learn how Google is using voice tech and beyond. For information about the Webby Awards, please visit webbyawards.com, weBby awardscom or on social platforms at the webby awards as always you can find me on most social platforms at dmd likes our producer is terrence brosnan our writer is jordana jarrett our editorial director is nicole ferraro music is poddington bear claire graves is the fresh new super elixir that just hit the internet i'm your host david michelle davies and this is the webby podcast